This conference will now be recorded. All right, good afternoon and welcome to our ethics session uh, with uh, Ms. April Elliott. Uh, we're very, very pleased to have Ms. Elliott. Uh, she is the executive director of the Commission on Judicial Conduct. Um, you've been that for almost a year now. Uh, I, I see it'll right. be next, next month, so congratulations. She'd been there for seven years as disciplinary counsel. Uh, it, it's also great to have someone in that position who's previously served as a judge. And uh, Ms. Elliott served as a judge uh, for the Pinal County Superior Court and as a pro tem judge for Superior and Justice Court. So that is uh, great. Um, she's been in Arizona a very long time uh, and uh, graduated from U of A. We'll forgive her for that. Uh, and uh, if you have any questions, you can go ahead and ask questions. Or, uh, you can interrupt or you can put them in the chat box and I will ask them. If you're not actively asking a question, please mute yourself. And at this point, I'll turn it over to Ms. Elliott. Thank you, Judge Adonetto, and thank all of you for joining this afternoon. I know this may be a repeat uh, of material that some of you have heard before. Uh, it's always probably a good idea to do a refresher on the code uh, every year or so. And things have been a little bit crazy at my office recently, but uh, I hope uh, maybe the next time to put together a little bit different material, uh, maybe something doing political and social media, or maybe focusing on a little bit on Canon 3, um, on sort of extrajudicial activities that you could engage in, because uh, that certainly engenders a lot of questions uh, to me for ethics advice. So those are maybe some future programs to look forward to. Uh, but with that, we'll, we'll get started um, overviewing the code and um, sort of the process with the commission. And as uh, Judge Adonetto mentioned, uh, feel free if you have questions to uh, put them in the chat and he's gonna uh, interrupt me um, as needed. So we wanna make this interactive and informative for you. So the first part we're gonna do is sort of overview the code and then we'll talk about some specific areas. And at the end, we do have some hypotheticals for you. So the code of judicial conduct essentially applies to anyone who's authorized to perform judicial functions within the Arizona judiciary. Um, so this does include broadly justice of the peace, judges, magistrates, commissioners, special masters, hearing officers, and of course, pro tems. Uh, and because this is only within the judicial branch, uh, the commission and the code do not apply to administrative law judges that operate for uh, agencies under the executive branch. That's frequently a question that we get asked. Do you have you know, jurisdiction over MVD uh, administrative law judges or uh, the law judges that uh, the administrative law judges that uh, preside over uh, unemployment hearings. No, we do not, because those are all uh, judges under the executive branch. So the code of judicial conduct, um, as most of you probably know, uh, has four canons, um, and each of which, you know, contains multiple rules and comments. Uh, the canons obviously state the overarching principles of judicial ethics that all judges should should follow 
the rules are sort of the black letter law, so to speak, and then the comments can provide some interpretation and guidance. Uh, violations of the code can result in disciplinary sanctions imposed either by the commission or by the Arizona Supreme Court if the conduct is severe enough such to warrant formal charges. So Canon 1, uh, language that you see uh, a lot uh, repeated throughout various uh, portions or comments of the code, uh, obviously a judge shall uphold and promote the independence, integrity, and impartiality of the judiciary um, and avoid impropriety and the appearance of impropriety. So that's sort of the, the big kicker. This is actually the language of Rule 1.2. Canon 1 uh, has, is, uh, has the least amount of rules. It only has three. Uh, obviously, Rule 1.1 requires a judge to comply with the law, uh, regardless of whether they approve or disapprove of it. Uh, Canon 2, obviously, the, the same language, or Rule 1.2, the same language as the um, overarching uh, canon. For those of you who are uh, part-time pro tems or hearing officers, uh, this will, this particular uh, rule only applies to you when you are serving as a judge. If you are a full-time judicial officer, this does apply to you at all times. And then rule 1.3, um, avoiding the abuse of the prestige of judicial office so that you are not using your judicial office or title to advance the personal interests or economic interests of yourself or others or allow others to do so. So Canon 2 requires a judge to perform the duties of judicial office impartially, competently, and diligently. Canon 2 has several rules, um, 16 of them. Uh, so we're going to focus on, uh, not going to go through all of them, um, but we're just going to focus on a couple. Um, if it comes with an asterisk, it means that it, if for those of you who are uh, part-time pro tems or hearing officers, that these may not apply to you or only apply in uh, limited circumstances. Obviously, impartiality and fairness is important, and that kind of goes hand in hand. Uh, 2.2 and 2.3 go hand in hand. We do see a lot of complaints. Um, Many of them are basically at their core disagreements with legal rulings, but they might be couched in terms of bias um, or that the judge was treating one side differently than treating another. Uh, so we do see quite a bit of uh, complaints that kind of fall under those two umbrellas. The vast majority of these turn out to you know, not have merit, but um, there is sort of that big perception that people have about how they get treated. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. Uh, rule 2.5, uh, governing competence, diligence, and cooperation. Rule 2.5a does require uh, as well that you perform the judicial duties promptly. Uh, that ties into the 60-day rule, and we'll talk about that a little bit further. Rule 2.6, ensuring the right to be heard. This is also where we do see um, a lot of complaints with people who don't feel that they were given a full opportunity to be heard. And of course, rule 2.8, decorum, demeanor, and communications with jurors. <laughs> this is a big one, your, your, your demeanor, how you uh, talk to people. Um, 
big area of complaints that we see. Um, the rule does require you to be patient, dignified, and courteous uh, with anyone with whom you have sort of official interactions. So not only litigants, jurors, witnesses, attorneys, court staff, and anyone else that you deal with in a official capacity. We'll talk about some things regarding demeanor a little bit later on. Oops, go back to that. So the next set of rules under rule or Canon 2, 2.9 ex parte communications. Uh, this basically obviously prohibits you from having communications with only one side. There are some very limited exceptions to do that, usually for scheduling, administrative, or emergency purposes. The rule that says that you cannot engage in any independent investigations also fall, this is rule 2.9C, falls under ex parte communications, basically things like not going out and visiting the scene of a traffic stop or things of that nature, um, that you can find your review to the evidence that's been presented to you. Rule 2.10, uh, governing judicial statements on pending and impending cases. Again, this has limited uh, applicability to those of you um, part-time pro tems or hearing officers. Uh, this rule, um, as I may have mentioned, was at, if any of you were here in January, this rule was just recently amended this year. Um, the Task Force on Countering Disinformation actually proposed a rule change petition that the Supreme Court adopted to essentially expand a judge's ability to respond to um, unfair attacks or uh, accusations that might have been leveled against the judge. Um, obviously, the judge must still conform uh, their comments such that they're not impairing the fairness of a hearing, but it did expand the ability to respond to some of those uh, as we move to a more, unfortunately, a more and more divisive society. Um, and a lot of these attacks now end up occurring on social media. Rule 2.11 talks about disqualification. And while there are um, enumerated categories of different types of uh, situations where you need to disqualify, you need to remember sort of the catch-all provision at the very beginning of the rule that requires a judge to disqualify um, in any matter in which their impartiality might reasonably be questioned. Um, and I can certainly, if anyone's interested, point you to um, some of the opinions that discuss how to define reasonable. This is not um, a sovereign citizen's version of reasonable. <laughs> There's obviously um, a much more tempered definition for that. Uh, other ones under uh, Canon 2 that uh, for full-time uh, judges, there are some supervisory duty responsibilities uh, where you need to ensure that your staff uh, is acting appropriately and not engaging in anything you would otherwise be prohibited from doing. Um, and then rules 2.15, 2.16, kind of related to misconduct and cooperation with disciplinary authorities. A lot of the times we get questions um, about whether or not a judge has a duty to self-report themselves for a particular violation. Uh, 
The code does not necessarily place a duty of self-reporting, although sometimes reporting it yourself before someone else does um, can be a mitigating factor for the commission. Um, but the question on whether or not you would ever need to report another judge um, or if you would need to report an attorney for misconduct, it's whether or not their conduct uh, raises a substantial question about the lawyer or judge's trustworthiness, honesty, or fitness as a judge or a lawyer in other capacities. And obviously rule 2.16 requires um, uh, to cooperate with the commission in their investigation and not to retaliate against employees who may cooperate with the commission in the course of an investigation. Okay. Now we'll move on to, to Canon 3. And this one governs uh, extrajudicial activities, things that you want to do um, outside your judicial duties. Um, the overarching principle is that these need to be conducted in order to minimize the risk of conflict with your judicial office. But the rules under Canon 3, and again, there are a total of 16 of them under this Canon, uh, basically, the judiciary doesn't want judges despite what many of you may think, living in isolation. Um, we want you to be active and engaged members of your community. You just have to be a little bit cautious about what activities you engage in. So rule 3.1 does discuss uh, extrajudicial activities in general um, and sets forth some criteria um, on what you can or can engage in. Um, these are gonna be things like, uh, you can't engage in conduct that's going to frequently lead to you being disqualified um, to hear things, or you can't uh, be involved with organizations that you know practice discrimination. And part of the limitations under Rule 3.1 is obviously not utilizing any court resources um, when you are engaging in these activities, which does include email. Um, there are asterisks against uh, several of these. And again, these are for ones where, uh, for pro tems and hearing officers, if you are part-time, some of these do not apply to you ever. And some of them are only going to have limited applications. And we will get to that in a few minutes. Um, obviously you can't use any non-public information that you obtain as a judge um, in an inappropriate manner. Rule 3.7, the title about participation in education, religious, charitable, fraternal, or civic organizations and activities. This one also contains the prohibition for full-time judges against fundraising for any of these entities. Um, and there are some limitations on uh, what you can or can't do uh, in that respect. So make sure if you have questions about what type of outside activities you can engage in that you look through this particular canon and certainly um, we're going to talk about how to get advice uh, down the road. Uh, if you're a full-time judge, you cannot serve as an arbitrator or mediator. You cannot practice law. If you are not a, if you are a part-time judge, um, yes, you will be able to engage in these activities uh, to a certain degree. So the remainder part of Canon 3 
Um, there are some, for full-time judges, there are some restrictions on your financial and business activities. Um, again, those are not gonna apply to the part-time ones. Uh, there's also financial reporting requirements, um, reporting of gifts um, and things that you can or cannot accept. Um, most, you know, obviously if somebody wants to come and give you free tickets to a sporting event, uh, probably need to turn that down, um, but it does permit you to accept what they refer to as ordinary social hospitality. So, you know, if somebody, you know, baked cookies and, you know, brought cookies in that it's probably okay to partake in with the cookies, um, but don't accept, you know, box seats to um, a sporting event. And then rule 3.16, um, conducting weddings. Uh, obviously this is uh, a big thing at the JP level. Um, it does list the requirements for uh, conducting weddings, which is that if you, you cannot obviously conduct a wedding during court hours, if it will otherwise interrupt your court calendar or cause you to have to postpone matters on your court calendar. You cannot accept a fee for conducting a wedding during court hours. However, you are permitted to, to do so if the wedding is conducted um, after hours. And it does also prohibit advertising for weddings or that your availability to do weddings. Okay. Canon 4, from an overview perspective, this one governs campaign and political activity. Um, again, the, the full canon is applicable to full-time judges. Uh, only certain rules are applicable to part-time judges. So there's five rules under this canon. Uh, rule 4.1 governs political and campaign activities um, of judges and judicial candidates. So if you are a full-time judge, you will have restrictions on your uh, political activities, such as being unable to endorse or oppose a candidate for public office, uh, not serving in any sort of party leadership role, including as a precinct committeeman. Um, other limitations are set forth under that rule. Rule 4.2 talks about the political and campaign activities of judicial candidates. Uh, sets forth criteria for these individuals who are running for judicial office, uh, discussing, you know, they can't use the title of judge um, if they don't hold it. They can't imply that they already hold the office um, before they've been elected. Uh, rule 4.3 uh, governs campaign standards and communications and sort of the really the overarching principle of that particular rule is the need to be scrupulously accurate um, in what you're communicating. Rule 4.4 talks about uh, what your, that your campaign committee basically is going to be governed by the same rules. You will be held to uh, basically knowing what your campaign committee is doing and advising them accordingly. And lastly, Rule 4.5 talks about the activities of judges who may want to become a candidate for a non-judicial office. So if you're currently a judge and you want to run for senator, um, you are going to have to resign in order to do so. Okay, so it's canon four. So as I've been mentioning, um, that certain rules don't apply to certain individuals. 
the scope section of the code divides judges um, into different categories. If you're full-time, I think you're technically a part A judge um, and the full code applies to you and applies to you at all times. For full-time judges, there is never a time when you're not a judge. You are a judge 24 seven. Um, April, April yes. we, we do have a couple of questions uh, sure. that on the wedding issue. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, would having information about weddings on the court website be an advertisement? Well, that one I'm going to say is a little bit um, gray. We've we've dealt with this issue um, fairly recently um, over the last year. Um, but the Judicial Ethics Advisory Committee has not chosen to issue a formal written opinion on that. Uh, what I will tell you is that there is an old ethics opinion. Um, it's from, I think, 2008, which essentially talks about, um, let me pull it up here. Sorry, not coming up on my other computer. So there, it's a it's a 2000 opinion, older than what I thought. My apologies. It talks about listing judicial po uh, positions in the yellow pages. Um, the relevant takeaways from that opinion are that what it stated: the court is not a commercial enterprise. Hence, a listing in the yellow pages could only be seen as an um, advertisement of availability to perform a discretionary function, weddings. Um, so, uh, and it says, with the exception of the governmental pages in a telephone directory or the white pages, this is going way back to when those things were actually coming out. Um, sitting judges who wish to identify, or for sitting judges who wish to identify the judicial position. The same prohibition applies to any other medium such as flyers or internet business listings. So again, like I said, 22 years old. Um, based on that opinion, uh, based on some um, opinions from other states, when this question has come up, um, I have essentially opined that um, <clears throat> is difficult to put, you know, to advertise that on the website um, in light of those opinions. Um, the commission did previously um, issue a couple of advisories related to this. Um, one in particular had to do with a judge that was advertising his ability for wedding services on a private website, not on the court site. Um, you know, clearly, Sorry. Clearly, websites today, you know, are much that that is how mo a lot of people get their information when that was still sort of in its infancy in 2000 when the opinion was written. On a personal note, I think that the opinion needs to be revisited, um, but the JEAC has not chosen to do that. So many people come to the court's website to look for that information. So I think as long as it is 
limited in what it states that, you know, if you're interested in a wedding, these are sort of the parameters and here's who you call to set this up. Um, I think as long as it's on the court website and fairly limited in, in that respect, I think it's okay. If it starts going a little beyond that, um, then I think it becomes um, problematic. My understanding was that there was, um, in response to some issues regarding uh, weddings down um, uh, at a county down south from here, um, there was a statewide wedding task force that was uh, formed to potentially look at this, perhaps revising portions of the code um, regarding some of this. Um, my understanding is the committee sort of uh, didn't go beyond that because essentially the consensus was this seemed to only be a problem in one county and other counties were not so inclined to um, propose a solution in search of a problem. So the task force disbanded, so to speak. Uh, Chris, I saw your little pop-up. I'm, I'm happy to send that uh, to you to review um all of the judicial ethics advisory opinions are found on uh the cjc's website there's a tab um that says judicial ethics advisory opinion and the one that i was referring to um regarding uh advertising in the yellow pages um is 0008 um also happy um if anyone's interested i can share a link to um an opinion from uh another state, uh, I believe it was Washington, um, with a very uh, similar result, basically prohibiting um, advertisement on a website. Again, I, I think some of this, in, in my own personal opinion, is a little bit um, at a disconnect with how we as a society communicate and look for information today. Um, particularly the younger generation, they're more inclined to look on a website for information than they are to pick up a phone or walk in um, or, you know, things of that nature. So I, I think I think there's a need for this to, to be looked at and potentially revised and um, some parameters um, put in place uh, to talk about putting it on a court's website. I think if it's on the the court's website, there's sort of that, even if it's sort of an artificial one, that buffer um, that this is simply, we're providing this information, but we're, you know, this isn't um, a particular individual judge out there, you know, trolling a wedding expo, handing out cards, things of that nature. That's what I honestly think the, the wedding advertisement was, you know, designed to prohibit. Um, I think I heard a story one time that uh, several years ago on Valentine's Day, obviously a very popular um, day for folks to get married at one of the consolidated courts, uh, you had a, you know, obviously there was like, you know, four or so judges in there performing weddings. And I think one of them had their staff out in the parking lot handing out roses to uh, couples coming in, you know, trying to get them to steer them to their particular court. So. That I think is one of the things the rule was designed to prevent. But I think just sticking to information about we offer weddings, they're available after hours or whatever the parameters are, and 
this is the fee. Here's who you contact on how to get that set up. I think as long as you're sticking with that, I think that's a little bit hard pressed to um, to, to say that that's actually an advertisement. And that might have been okay. way too much information or, or to the responsive to the question. Thank you. Was there another one on weddings or no? Well, this one is, is, is kind of odd, but what if there is an online review for a judge who did their wedding uh, that the judge didn't write and the judge might not even be aware of? Uh, for the person who asked that, an online review where? Um, on the courts? To the courts website? To... No, those online, those review apps. Like Yelp or something or? Like Yelp, right. Okay. Or um, Facebook. And, and so is the question like, how do you get that taken down or is that going to be considered to be advertising? Is that problematic for the judge? Um, if the judge didn't write it, I, I don't know how the judge would go about getting it taken down um, because obviously whoever posted it um, they have their you know particular free speech rights so i would not necessarily see that as um, potentially problematic for the judge if it appears you know on one of those sites if it's something that the judge would then somehow link to like their own Facebook page or some other social media page to where then they're sort of like endorsing the, the, the review, so to speak. I think that might be a little bit problematic, but um, if it's just, you know, and trying to get some of these sites to take stuff down is difficult. So I, I wouldn't see that if somebody, you know, just somebody did a wedding for post a review, good, bad, or otherwise, um, I don't know, I wouldn't consider that advertising by the judge. The code only applies to the judge. And if someone wants to give a good shout out or a bad shout out, um, that's their free speech right to do so. Okay, other questions on the weddings? Uh, that's it. Okay. All right, so back to how the code divides up judges into different categories. Um, so you have part C or part B, C, and D judges. Part B judges are the retired judges that um, are on what they call the callback to duty list. Um, so these are judges that are what they call available for assignment. They might be. Um, you know, a retired JP that now, you know, agrees to come back as a pro tem. So these are rules that if you are a part B judge that you don't have to comply with at any time. And then becomes the other thing of where we have this odd distinction under the code. We have part C and part D judges. Um, these are both part-time uh, pro tem judges. Um, and it was a bit confusing because you had different rules that applied to whether you were a Part C or a Part D. Um, and Judge Adornetto actually um, kind of helped, did an easy fix for that loophole. 
because there are some there's a different restrictions. So now most part-time judges, and in fact, I think very hard pressed to find ones who don't fall into this category. Most part-time pro tems or hearing officers are what we consider part D judges uh, based on how they are appointed um, either to uh, by um, subsection under the constitution, state statute or a municipal charter or ordinance. Um, so most people become a part D judge. If you're a part D judge, uh, only while serving as judge do you need to comply with rules 1.2, 2.4, 2.10, 3.2, and 3.3. And then there's a whole host of ones that you don't have to comply with at any time. Uh, so you don't have to obviously worry, I mean, you can continue to practice law if you're an attorney. There's no restrictions on your financial or business activities. Obviously, there's no reporting um, requirements, and you are not—you don't have to abide by the same restrictions regarding political activity. Okay. So, just a little note on this: um, this came up in a conversation um, regarding actually Superior Court pro tems, but I wanted to throw this. Um, into this slideshow as well. So Part D judges are not exempt from Rule 1.3, the avoiding the abuse of the prestige of judicial office. So there is a formal ethics advisory opinion 0306 out there um, that prohibits attorneys that are serving as pro temp judges from using their judicial titles on legal stationery and an advertising soliciting business. So uh, this was written under the old code, but it is still applicable. Um, and the same reasoning would basically prohibit mentioning your status as a pro tem on the law firm's website or other social media. Um, I say this because I see this violated frequently. Um, I see this on attorneys' websites all the time. Um, you know, I also serve as a pro tem in X court or courts. And, and this is problematic because it's obviously being done to sort of enhance your services and get people to come hire you because they're going to think you're a better lawyer because you also happen to be a judge pro tem. This is not something that, you know, if I just happen to come across that we, you know, that I ask the commission to open an investigation and go after the person. But um, from time to time, uh, we do have it raised um, in complaints to us. And so just, I think it's something that a lot of um, lawyers who serve as pro tems are unaware of. So if you fall, fall into that category, um, just wanted to make sure that you're aware of this. Okay, so if you are obviously part-time um, and you want to continue to practice law, and, and I guess, how many on the that are on fall into this category? Are there quite a few? I don't want to spend a lot of time on this if there's not that many on here or if there's no attorney pro tems. Well, we, we do have attorneys and we did just get a couple of questions. So uh, okay. can you list your pro tem experience on your resume? And um, uh, are the, the the restriction you just talked about was that limited to solicitation? 
So if it's on a website, but it's not there for solicitation. Okay. Well, how do you have a website that isn't for solicitation? I think that's going to be how it gets interpreted. If it's your business website, it's there to generate business for you. Um, I see some of the questions about how does this relate to LinkedIn? Um, LinkedIn. LinkedIn is essentially an online resume. So the way that I would view this is that obviously you can include um, your pro tem service on your resume as part of your skills, particularly like, for example, um, if you are applying, you know, for judicial office, because obviously, you know, your prior experience would be something that would be relevant for that determination. I think the question would become then is who's able to see your LinkedIn profile? Do you have it set to where anyone can see it and can see the full profile publicly? Or do you have to specifically be logged into LinkedIn in order to see it? Um, if it's set to where anyone, you know, if I just run a Google search and your LinkedIn pops up, that might be a little bit problematic because then there could be an argument that that is also to potentially generate business um, by using the pro tem to catch people, you know, as a selling point to catch people's eye. But if it's, you know, if you've got your settings a little bit different, so where somebody has, you know, has to be a member of LinkedIn logged in to see it, um, then I think that might be a little bit different. Um, but if it's, like I said, if if you have it on your firm website, your firm website exists to get you business. So that's how that's going to play out. Okay. Other questions on that? No. Okay. So if you are an attorney um, and a part-time pro tem practicing law, um, part D also uh, contains some guidance on practicing law in the court where you serve. Um, so if you only, you know, if you serve once or maybe like really sporadically, like I only serve as a pro tem there maybe twice a year, um, you can appear as a lawyer in that same court. If you are serving on a continued and scheduled basis, then you cannot serve as a lawyer in the court where you're serving as judge. So it might be, I cover the eviction calendar every Thursday. Um, that's continuing and scheduled. You can't um, serve. And then there's another group. And this one's sort of getting in the weeds here. Um, if you are appointed to perform judicial functions of a non-appealable nature, uh, which is going to be limited, like think small claims and that nature, who serves on a continuing scheduled basis may not appear as a lawyer in other proceedings involving the same function, but may appear in other areas of practice before the court. So if you're hearing small claims cases um, as a judicial officer and you're there fairly frequently, um, you can't, I mean, obviously you don't have lawyers in small claims anyway, but you could not appear as a lawyer in a small claims matter, but you could appear in that same court um, in a criminal matter. So um, part D of the code does list out these and gives some example, additional examples there. Okay, so moving on, 
Um, actually, I skipped over. Okay, so that's sort of the overview of the code. Um, so there are a couple of different entities that deal with judicial discipline and ethics. Um, they're not all lumped into one. So the Commission on Judicial Conduct is actually the regulatory body. This is the one that investigates complaints of misconduct um, and then can issue certain sanctions uh, to a judge for their misconduct if the conduct is particularly severe to result in formal charges. Then the commission serves as the trier of fact, makes findings and recommendations um, regarding a potential discipline. However, the matter does then go up to the Supreme Court who can accept or reject the commission's recommendations. Um, and uh, they're the ones who actually issue the formal sanction. In the middle there, you have the Judicial Ethics Advisory Committee. This is a separate committee. Um, members are different than the membership of the Commission on Judicial Conduct. And this body is a Supreme Court committee whose function it serves to give ethics advice to judges, uh, judicial employees, and judicial candidates. Um, we do ask that, that their inquiry be limited to the inquirer's own perspective conduct. So questions like, my opponent did this, was that wrong? It is not something that you know we particularly want to answer. However, it's if I were to send out a campaign flyer that said X, would that be okay? Those are the types of things that we would look at. Um, so I staff that committee um, and I primarily handle most of the informal uh, ethics inquiries, although from time to time, I may ask the members of that committee to weigh in on a particular issue if I think it's a gray area. Um, or I think it could be seen two different ways. Um, and then they also are the ones who field uh, the request for a formal written ethics opinion. Uh, we currently do have one of those that is pending. And it uh, deals with disqualification considerations for post-judicial employment for those judges who are retiring and uh, looking into other options, uh, what you must uh, disclose and when you must disqualify if your uh, future employer might be appearing before you. Uh, so that is in the works. Um, it's currently in the comment period. Um, so if you have uh, thoughts or comments on that particular issue, please uh, respond and we will share them with the committee. Um, before they issue their opinion on that. The comment period for that will close, I forgot, uh, probably mid-May or so. Okay, so this is a, just a current listing of the membership of the uh, Commission on Judicial Conduct. It's comprised of six judges from all levels, appellate, superior, uh, JP, and city and two attorneys and three members of the public. And these individuals are all volunteers um, and this is a volunteer assignment where they work. They review a lot of material and it's, it's a lot of work for them in addition to whatever their regular workload is. And oftentimes it is thankless work for them. <laughs> so how does the commission work? Well, obviously, generally um, begins with a complaint uh, being filed with us. 
So anyone can file a complaint. Um, we do accept anonymous complaints as well, um, although sometimes that poses limitations on investigation. So when a complaint first comes in, there is um, an initial screening. And a lot of times complaints will end up being dismissed um, at that initial screening stage. Um, the I do not have authority to dismiss complaints. Once upon a time, the executive director had that authority, but about oh, 10 or 11 years ago, that was changed. And now the members of the commission uh, review and they look at everything and they're the ones who are the decision makers. So a lot of cases are screened out at that initial stage though, because many of them are just, you know, the judge calculated my child support wrong. We're not an appellate court. Um, the other side doesn't get to weigh in on whether or not the child support calculations were correct. So we're gonna kick that um, because it's basically a disagreement with a ruling that's pretty much beyond our jurisdiction. Some other ones that might get dismissed in an initial screening stage might be uh, an allegation of, you know, the judge was rude and screamed at me during a hearing. Uh, staff looks at the recording and none of that is substantiated, that can be screened out at that point in time. If it ends up going beyond initial screening to a preliminary investigation, these can be things where we might need to get the judge's response, um, we might need to investigate witnesses, we might need to look more thoroughly at some court records or other documents, um, but once that investigation is completed, um, it can go one of two ways. It can either go informal disposition process or formal disposition process. So if it's an informal disposition process, um, it, this is something that is strictly decided by the commission. So the commission can end up dismissing that case either with or without a comment. Um, we have advisory or warning comments that um, typically advise or warn a judge about their conduct. Uh, we have the only informal sanction we have at this point in time is a public reprimand. Um, and then other terms that can be imposed um, can include an educational component, getting counseling, getting mentoring, coming in and having a consultation with the commission, which is kind of like being called to the principal's office. If the charges are more severe, um, then it can go to the formal disposition process. So we have a process where we can staff, if we think that it could warrant formal charges, then we request that an investigative panel be formed. <clears throat> There's 11 members of the commission. An investigative panel is comprised of three members. Um, typically, we have a representative from each category, one public member, one attorney, and one judge. And the investigative panel, for lack of a better analogy, functions like a grand jury, uh, determining whether or not there's reasonable cause to file formal charges. Um, if they do not find that there's reasonable cause, then they send the matter back to the commission, who can issue an informal sanction. If the panel does find that there's reasonable cause, then a statement of charges gets filed. 
um, the judge gets an opportunity to respond. That ultimately typically results in a formal hearing unless there's um, any sort of stipulation to resolve it. Um, if the uh, he hearing panel, which would be the other eight members, the members of the investigative panel would not serve on the hearing panel. So if the other eight members of the commission serving as the hearing panel failed to find any code violation, the complaint could be dismissed. If they did find um, one or more code violations um, and they believe that formal sanctions were warranted, again, they would make those recommendations, but then it would go up to the Supreme Court for review and the Supreme Court can then either accept or reject the recommendations or remand it back to the commission for further findings. Okay, so this is, uh, for those of you who got the original PowerPoint, uh, this is one of the other slides that was updated. Because now we have our statistics for 2021. Um, the 2021 annual report was posted to the website. <clears throat> we got 439 complaints last year. And this is the highest that we have had um, at least within about the last 15 years. Um, <clears throat> this in 2021, uh, the commission did issue five public reprimands, 20 warning letters, and 12 advisory letters. I will tell you that we were without disciplinary counsel for a four-month period of time last year, um, so that really delayed things. So there are still some 2021 matters that are still being considered by the commission. Um, and but if we report the the discipline by the year it was issued in. So um, 2022's report may have 2021 cases, but the discipline was issued in 2022. So here's some examples of some recent reprimands. Um, <clears throat> the judge was reprimanded for not following the COVID-19 protocols and the Arizona Supreme Court's administrative orders, um, a failure to timely rule, uh, mocking a litigant in a Facebook post, uh, inappropriate demeanor, um, and being tardy for court proceedings, failing to issue timely rulings, frequent absences from the court, during court hours, and performing weddings for cash. Those are some of the examples of some recent reprimands. Some recent warnings, um, a lot of warnings about demeanor, uh, ruling on motions without allowing all parties to be heard. Uh, not allowing cross-examination out of concern that it would be abused by a pro se litigant. Uh, you can certainly stop cross-examination um, if it becomes abusive, but you can't say, I'm not going to give you an opportunity to do that. Um, and there was a prior warning, this one's actually a couple years old, for telling the litigant she was, quote, wasting the court's time. Uh, that might have honestly been true, but you can't use those words. and some recent advisories. Um, you don't have to recuse just because somebody filed a complaint against you. Um, however, I would say that, you know, if you, you have to be the evaluator and if you do end up developing some sort of personal bias or animus towards um, an individual who has filed a complaint against you, then you probably do need to recuse. Um, give advisories for demeanor related issues, um, an advisory is issued reminding somebody about the prohibition on charitable fundraising. This particular case that I'm thinking of, <laughs> uh, 
crossed over into the social media one where uh, it sort of was very inadvertent. Um, the new, you know, judge was newly appointed, um, had previously always on uh, done like a birthday challenge, raising money for a particular cause, and it sort of auto-generated on her Facebook. So got to be careful sometimes with social media that some of the things that you may have done before becoming a judicial officer um, to disable some of those because um, otherwise they just tend to crop up. So what becomes public? Um, in dismissed cases, uh, all identifying information is redacted before uh, those matters uh, get posted to our website. Um, so we redact judge's name, complainant's name, case number, any other information that might otherwise identify the matter. If it results in a public reprimand or formal charges, the record is public, um, and this information is available on our website. If in the unlikely event um, that you are asked to respond to a complaint, um, please do not automatically assume that discipline is going to be imposed merely because you were asked to respond to a complaint. Um, sometimes we simply need the judge's side of the story because staff can't assume or presume um, what may have um, happened in a particular case. So an example that I can give is, so we received a complaint about, it was phrased as a, a judge had a conflict of interest um, in handling a certain matter um, and it was in a high profile case. And uh, so this would have been a presiding judge who would have reassigned things. And uh, because she had a conflict of interest in the underlying case, then she shouldn't have you know, picked what judge it went to. So I have a fairly you know, good working knowledge of how reassignments um, with respect to changes of judge worked in that particular court. Um, but I cannot avow that that's what happened in this particular case. So that judge was asked to respond and explain, you know, I had nothing to do with this. This went to my, you know, deputy and the deputy reassigned it pursuant to, you know, these criteria. Um, so that one is one, like I said, where you may, we just simply needed the judge's side of the story. Um, if you do respond promptly or request an extension of time, you'd be surprised at the number of judges who'd be like, yeah, I got your letter and I forgot about it. Mm -hmm. We give you a deadline because if we didn't, some judges would just never respond. Um, be direct, be to the point, address any rules that might've been cited. Consider the, you know, put yourself in the complainant's perspective, how they viewed things. Um, this is always a good idea, maybe to have somebody else uh, read it before you submit it, um, because obviously sometimes people tend to take these very personally. Um, they submit it in an angry tone, or they want to spend, you know, four pages attacking the complainant. Um, trust me, if the complainant is a difficult litigant, a vexatious litigant, um, <laughs> has mental health issues, we will likely have figured that out without you spending four pages telling us that. Um, and if you made a mistake, acknowledge it and, you know, 
tell us how it could be fixed going forward. So any questions on the complaint process before we move to sort of common complaints and how to avoid them? Okay. So delayed rulings, we see more of this at the superior court level, but occasionally we see it at the justice of the peace level. So there is a statute that basically talks about <clears throat> that a justice of the peace shall not receive their salary unless they certify that no matter remains pending and undetermined for 60 days after it's been submitted for decision, unless the chief justice grants dispensation. Uh, so if you, take something under advisement um, or make sure you have good calendaring processes in place for motions that do get filed, um, that the tracking system, I think it's your EDMS, make sure that that works well to track these and that it's being brought to you um, and that you're able to get through all the rulings in your queue before those 60 days expire. Uh, submitting a false certification is a misdemeanor. Um, there have been a, some recent censure and a couple reprimands for this. I am not aware of any judge that ever has been criminally charged for this, but that's not to say that that could not ever happen. Um, not all 60 day, day violations will arise to a code violation. Um, there is an advisory opinion on this um, that kind of talks about that in detail and factors for consideration. And again, that can also be found on the commission's website. So demeanor, uh, number one complaint. Um, this is something where, honestly, <laughs> I have seen uh, some very interesting judges' responses sometimes to demeanor-related complaints. We had a judge one time who responded without ever listening to the recording, even though we sent the judge the recording. Um, and just responded based on their recollection of the event. Uh, if you get a complaint about our demeanor and there's recording, listen to it. You may not have come across as you intended or even as you remembered. Um, some ways to sort of monitor how you're doing. Review your own recordings or you know, ask staff, if you can trust staff to be honest with you, um, for feedback on how you're coming across. Um, and think about it from, you know, would somebody, a disinterested observer just sitting in the back of the courtroom, would they perceive you as dignified, courteous, and impartial? And, you know, we understand judges are human. Sometimes there are litigants that are going to frustrate the heck out of you. Um, so try and have a plan in place. Um, if you start becoming frustrated or angry, it's okay to take a break. Um, they don't have to know why you're taking a break. Um, you know, you can simply say, I need to go tend to an emergent matter or something of that effect um, that gives you an opportunity to sort of calm down. Also, if they were getting a little bit heated, it gives them a little bit of time to calm down too and, you know, come back to it with a um, fresh approach. But this is, this is a perennial judicial ethics issue. Um, and also some of the things too that uh, we're having to look for now is particularly with the advent of all the remote hearings, that sometimes somebody might be coming across via Zoom in, in a way that might not be, you know, they might be sounding louder or um, different ways over a remote hearing than they would in person. 
this is a quote from a case out of Arkansas that just sort of hits home um, why judicial demeanor is, is a good idea. Um, because the power imbalance um, is there that a litigant doesn't have a way to respond to a judge's angry demeanor without risking a harsh or even a vindictive counter response from the judge. So some of you may have seen this in other trainings, um, procedural justice considerations just to ensure the right to be heard, um, that litigants need to perceive things that they have had an they perceive that they've had an opportunity to tell their story. They perceive that they're treated with dignity and respect, um, that the process is unbiased and trustworthy, that they understand their rights and the judge's decision, and that the court is interested in their personal situation. So some helpful tips in, in, in this would be certainly, you know, you know, thanking them for the cooperation, speaking in plain English. Uh, you know, making eye contact with them. Um, a lot of people now take a lot of notes um, on the computer um, and we get lots of complaints where like all the judge did was type during my hearing. <laughs> and this might come even after the judge might've made a comment, I'm taking notes on the computer, but I am listening. Um, so that engaging them in dialogue, you know, making, making them aware, like I am listening, I'm actively engaging with you. Um, Model the respect and courtesy that you want back. Um, for for new judges out there, don't become a victim to robitis, which is you know where your head gets too big based on your position. Um, you put your pants on one leg at a time, just like every other litigant that comes before you. So keep that in mind. Um, try to make sure that you're giving litigants an equal amount of time to present their case. Um, Self-represented litigants do frequently complain to us that the judge was biased because he or she allowed the other side more time. Um, we see this a lot where maybe one side is representative and one side are represented by an attorney and one side is self-represented. It might be that the lawyer is giving you more relevant um, and information, um, but if you let the lawyer talk more, it, it does give off this, this perception. Um, and it really is the perception of unfairness that generates the complaints. So ex parte communications, um, got to avoid these and sometimes avoiding like the appearance of ex parte communications. So this would be things like uh, you might have a particular officer that might be there for five civil traffic hearings that day. Um, and maybe you've put all the hearings together to, as you know, as a courtesy to the officer. So, you know, in between, you know, hearing two and hearing three, there's a little bit of a lull and you and the officer might be just in there talking about nothing case related, could be talking about the weather, could be talking about sports, you know, could be talking about anything. And the next litigant walks in and sees, you know, you and the officer, laughing, talking about it, their immediate assumption is they're talking about my case and the fix is already in. I'm not going to get a fair hearing. So that's the appearance of ex parte communication that we um, are kind of talking about here because we see a lot of complaints regarding that. Um, 
most courts have a system put in place um, you know, to have the staff screen these things so that the judges don't actually get ex parte communication from a litigant, but have a system in place for dealing with that. If you do receive an ex parte communication, notify all the parties and give them an opportunity to respond. For those of you, the part-time pro tems or, or hearing officers, uh, let's just say that there are some individuals out there that can be very crafty and very resourceful. Um, they might decide to communicate with you at your law firm or your place of business. Um, so just kind of keep that in mind and have a system in place for dealing with it if you know somebody calls up you know to your law firm to try and want to talk to you about a hearing that you've heard as a judge or going to hear as a judge. So just keep that in mind that there are um, some very crafty and resourceful people out there. Uh, we talked a little bit about this earlier. Um, rule 2.9C uh, does prevent, uh, prohibit a judge from um, investigating facts independently. You've got to consider only the evidence presented and what may properly be judicially noticed. Um, this, there's also, sorry, there's also a provision under the rule um, to make sure that you appropriately supervise your staff so that they're not essentially violating this rule. Um, so staff shouldn't be telling you what litigants are posting on their social media page, um, things of that nature. So you got to kind of keep control of that. Um, we have had some judges uh, recently. Um, I think one was in a reprimand. We've had some other warnings for conducting um, improper independent investigations. This is one that uh, was from another state. It's New Hampshire. Uh, poor Judge Albee, um, she got publicly reprimanded because she was using Zillow um, to decide several marital cases. And uh, certainly um, for anyone who's ever been remotely affiliated with family law, even from a judicial officer perspective, that you might have many cases where you have self-represented litigants who've spent two hours talking to you about everything under the sun except you know what you need to know in order to adequately divide their property and debts. So Judge Albee essentially went online to, and was using Zillow to, val uh, to value the marital residences. Um, problem was she wasn't letting the parties know um, what her uh, investigation found and give them an opportunity to respond. So I can give you an example that Let's say you might have, let's say like a, a, a small claims matter or a civil matter uh, where somebody's disputing over the value of a car and nobody's brought you any sort of great evidence regarding the value of the car. And you know somebody says it's worth a thousand, somebody says it's worth 5,000. You could ask the parties why they're there and say, does either party object if I go on Kelly Blue Book and look at the value of this car? If nobody objects and you do, and then you say, okay, I'm on Kelly Blue Book and it looks like there's a range of value between this and this. Does either party uh, want to address the alleged value? That is perfectly you know, acceptable because you've told them this is what I'm gonna do and you've given them an opportunity to respond. So this is a, a case, um, out of Wisconsin, uh, actually a little bit of harsh sanction, I think. Um, 
<clears throat> so the judge basically had protective orders, basically feuding neighbors. Um, there were dueling orders. Um, and obviously I'm sure probably most of you, if you've worked in the justice court long enough have had to deal with this. And so the judge took it a little bit too far. He reviewed the police department's files, spoke to the police chief about the history between these people and sort of in a misguided attempt to um, stop the feud, the judge misrepresented how the police would handle future disputes, telling the litigants that mutual citations for disorderly conduct would just in fact issue. Um, Wisconsin ended up suspending him for 15 days. It's a pretty severe sanction. Um, and that's considering that it was an isolated incident. He had no prior discipline. Um, he wasn't obviously trying to satisfy any personal desires or receive any personal benefit from it. He was just trying to get these people not to keep coming back to court. Um, but Wisconsin said that a judge's objectivity and impartiality are critical to the proper functioning of the judicial system. So what about disqualification issues? So if you have um, a situation where you might fall under one of the enumerated categories under rule 2.11, um, or uh, you, know, you might wanna you need to disclose something to the parties to see if they would want you to recuse, uh, 2.11c does basically allow you to do what they call a remittal of any disqualification, except if it's for bias or prejudice. The parties, if you have a personal bias or prejudice towards one of the parties, you cannot ask the parties to waive that. But let's say, for example, um, the individual, the lawyer appearing before you for one side is uh, like a shirt tail relative your brother's brother-in-law. You can disclose that and say, does either party have any objection to me um, hearing this case? The correct procedure is you must give the parties an opportunity to consider this outside of your presence and outside of the presence of court staff. Um, and if they do choose to waive it, you must make sure it's incorporated into the record. So self-represented litigants. Um, comment four to rule 2.2 talks about that it's not a code violation for a judge to make reasonable accommodations to ensure self-represented litigants have the opportunity to have their matters fairly heard. You can't give legal advice. Um, and if you bend over too far backwards for the self-represented litigant, if there's an attorney on the other side, then they're likely to say, you know, you're favoring the self-represented represented litigant. So where's the line? It can be a gray line sometimes. Uh, April, we, we uh, to back up to the previous instance, we do have a question. Um, is it safer to recuse in the example where you may have a bias or prejudice? It usually is because, you know, that that's one of those things where if you, if you, let's say you just, um, I'll give an example, sort of from my own experience. If you have um, somebody that's, you know, appeared before you a number of times, a very difficult litigant, and one where you're just like, oh my gosh, I don't even want to go to work today and deal with this person, you probably on some level have developed um, a bias or prejudice for this 
individual and no matter how hard you try to to rationalize and say i can decide this fairly on the evidence presented there might be something on a subconscious level there that it's probably um, the best option is to recuse in that situation um, some of the other like i said the enumerated categories you know might be things where um you know somebody's uh related um you know either as an attorney or as an a party or for example um so i see that this case um involves um, an issue with chase bank um, i think the party should be aware that my wife you know is an employee of chase bank but she you know was not involved in this case whatsoever however um, I just felt I needed to disclose that she is, in fact, an employee of Chase Bank. And, you know, if either side has an issue with me hearing this case, um, you know, please, you know, let me know. And, you know, then you give them an opportunity to consider it. Um, so, but sort of the default is with bias or prejudice, if you're having to think that you might have one, you probably do. And it's best to recuse in that situation. Okay, so um, if you're having questions, you know, certainly uh, talk to your colleagues. Many of them have been around a long time, might have dealt with a similar situation, um, or you can, you know, reach out and obtain an ethics opinion. It doesn't have to be written. It can just be an informal one. Um, and, you know, if it ends up something that ends up resulting in a complaint to the Judicial Conduct Commission, um, if, you followed the advice given, um, it will likely be viewed as a mitigating factor. So this is the current membership of the JEAC. I put my email there and I think it appears later on as well. Um, so the JEAC is composed of nine members. They, they represent all levels of the judiciary except the Supreme Court. We do have a, an attorney member as well um informal and formal opinions and that's a sampling of some of the recent opinions and i already talked about the one that's floating around out there waiting to be written okay so some of the like informal questions that uh, have uh, come up recently um the website for weddings um could a judge serve as a trustee or personal representative for a friend? Uh, could a judge accept a free ticket to a bar association social event? Could a volunteer hearing officer serve on our HOA board? Um, could a judge make a presentation on best practices to a group of private investigators? And in part, the reason why the JEAC is uh, considering the formal opinion is because what and when must a soon-to-be-retiring judge disclose about the judge's future employment has come up a lot. Um, a lot of it is in part to uh, <laughs> how the judge's retirement got changed. Um, so you have a lot of people uh, not staying their 20 years and leaving to go back to private practice. Um, so you can... Uh, call or you can email i actually do prefer you send an email for a couple of reasons 
One, um, we do track um, all of our inquiries every year so that we can keep track of those for statistical purposes. Um, two, it's I like it, you know, if you can just sort of outline what your question is. So it gives me a little bit of time to at least read the relevant rules of the code, maybe find a few um, relevant ethics opinions um, so that I'm just, you know, because sometimes some of these things need to be thought through a little bit. Um, and I want to give you good advice um, and may not always be able to do that on the fly. So unless we have other questions, um, I've got a few scenarios for you that we can finish up with. But I'll wait and see if anybody else has any questions. Okay. So, can you be involved with social media like Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn? And these are your options. And unfortunately, I can't see the chat. Otherwise, a lot of people would just put like the letter in the chat. Okay. Ah, now I can see the answers. There we go. Okay, so I'm seeing a lot of Bs, which is, is, yes, you can. It is a minefield of potential ethics violations. Um, and, and it's not just here in Arizona. Um, they, we get uh, an, uh, the, the Center for Judicial Ethics at the National Center for State Courts. They compile, you know, sort of weekly updates on things going around the nation. And then, you know, periodically they put together, you know, they group it by different categories of cases. And there's always one that's like, they call it epic Facebook fails. So um, yes, the, the best answer is B. Um, there is a formal ethics advisory opinion 1401 that talks about social and electronic media by judges and judicial employees. The opinion um, is specific to LinkedIn, blogs, uh, Facebook, but you can take the principles and apply them to some of the more newer platforms because the opinion is now eight years old and that's probably ancient by social media standards. Um, so, you know, same things would apply for Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, whatever else the new thing is. So some of the overarching principles don't talk about pending cases, or it's just a good thing. Um, don't share non-public information. Be careful about who you associate with. Um, people, causes, organizations, because uh, you might, you know, they might seem legit, but then if you do research, you find out maybe they're not. Um, be dignified and non-discriminatory. Using a you know a pseudonym may not protect you. And the other thing I would say is, uh, assume everything will be public. Um, even if you have your settings set to private, you have no control over who your family or friends are going to share something with or take a screenshot of um, to get issues that way. 
Um, and some other potential problems that social media can lead to is uh, litigants attempting to have ex parte communications with you, uh, can lead to obtaining facts outside the record, um, and potential could you know abuse the prestige of judicial office to advance your own interests or somebody else's, uh, quest for legal advice, some fundraising issues. We kind of briefly touched on that earlier. Some of these are inadvertent and just self-generate. And recognize that for those of you who have to run in a partisan elect an election, having a social media presence is pretty much mandatory these days. Um, but you got to be careful that you don't inadvertently run afoul of the prohibitions under Canon 4. All right, scenario number two. You're looking at the morning mail and you find a letter from somebody who's commenting on a case that's set for a hearing in front of you in a few days. What do you do? There's your potential options. Okay, so the best answer in this scenario is D. Um, if the letter relates to the substance of the case, promptly know the part, notify the parties and give them an opportunity to respond. All right, next scenario. So at the end of the evidentiary portion of a civil traffic hearing, you're uncertain about whether or not a specific statute applies to the case. And so you want to take the matter under advisement and call a more experienced judicial colleague and ask her for her thoughts. Can you do this? So the best answer to this is C. Um, yes, um, but make sure that you don't acquire uh, facts that aren't um, part of the record. And let me get back to rule um, 2.9. So there is 2.9A3 that a judge may consult with other judges or with court personnel whose functions are to aid the judge in carrying out the judge's adjudicative responsibilities. So yes, you can consult with other judges, but don't acquire facts that aren't part of the record. I do also like like D that you know just apparently pull other judges, and if there's a tie, you know if there's a tie, get one to break the tie. And and, and, I, and I do just want to interject here that the the difference why B is wrong is you're you're asking a judge their opinion. You're not asking the judge to to rule for you. So you you can right. always ask 
someone else their opinion, you don't have to follow it. Correct. And then, um, April, I think we're only going to have time for about one more. So if you want to pick the, the best of the last scenarios. Um, let's see here. So let's do five. Let's do five? Okay. All right, let me scroll up to five. This one's sort of interesting. Whoop. So attorneys sometimes drop by your office to chat um, you're, while you're careful not to discuss pending cases with them. Uh, additionally, in between cases, you engage in some social banner with them in the courtroom who are awaiting hearings. Do these practices pose any ethical issues? And there's your options. Okay, for the, the answers in the chat that I was able to see, uh, yes, C is the uh, best answer to avoid this type of practice because you are risking a complaint um, that you have engaged in ex parte communications or are biased. Um, even though you might not actually be talking about them, this is the perception we talked about before. Um, I do also like D in this situation, um, just post a sign saying idle chit chatter will have no impact on your case, but <laughs> I'd love to actually see that, you know, in a courtroom someday, but, um, but yeah, it, that's one of those perception issues to, you know, it's, it's best to just simply avoid that practice. Yeah, so with I wonder if we can expand on um, the recusal, um, say, you recognize one of the litigants because they go to the same church as you. When when do you need to make that disclosure? And and um, well, I'll, I'll just let you take it from there. I would say that it's usually best to make the disclosure as early in the process, you know, as possible. Um, preferably, you know, before the case starts. So if that there's an issue, you know, half the case hasn't been heard and now you're having to start over with somebody else. But sometimes, you know, I know some of these conflicts come up maybe with a witness who's like in the middle of testimony and suddenly a judge realizes that they might have a conflict. But let's say, for example, um, you know, you see the litigants walk in for, for a hearing and you're like, I know this person from my church. Um, you know, I would basically put on the record to say, you know, I know plaintiff or defendant, whoever it is, um, we attend the same church together. Um, it might be, you know, other than that, you know, and maybe some, you know, exchange of pleasantries and, and cordial communications, you know, we don't socialize together. Um, we're not friends, you know. Etc. Disclose what are the parameters of the relationship, um, and if you say, "I know nothing about the underlying circumstances of this case," I believe I can be fair and impartial. However, I wanted to make the parties aware, you know, of this relationship, and then I will give you guys an opportunity to decide 
um, whether or not you want to waive that particular conflict. Um, I, there's a comment to Rule 2.11 that talks about a judge is required um, to disclose on the record information the judge believes the parties or lawyers might reasonably consider relevant to a possible motion for disqualification, even if the judge believes there is no basis for the disqualification. And, and we, this next one, I, I want to say, is coming from one of the participants who asks, uh, what about you recognize one of the litigants, but you don't know from where? And the, <laughs> judge needs to be, the judge needs to be really careful about that because the litigant might say, uh, Your Honor, I, you saw me in the bar last night, but you're too drunk to remember. So you want to be real careful about that. So you, 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 that. you do. And, and I would say, if you simply recuse, you don't have to disclose the basis for that. Um, so, you know, if you if you think that, you know, asking somebody, where do you know me from might lead to personal embarrassment, maybe it's just better to say, I just now realized I have a conflict on this case and I'm going to recuse and we'll get this matter reassigned. Um, right. Yeah, you, you, you don't want them saying, you know, hey, judge, I recognize you from the adult bookstore. I'm the clerk there, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, just a couple more minutes. Uh, and uh, so do, does anyone have any last questions? All right, um, uh, April, any uh, I'll tell everyone uh, the, the materials will be um, uh, are online at, at the Hightail uh, website. Uh, the CoJet certificate is the last page of the materials. Um, April, do you have any closing thoughts? What I would just say is, even though last year we got 439 complaints and was like the highest number that we had, there are thousands of people who come into contact with the court system every day in Arizona at all different levels, and only 439 of them were that upset um, to come and make their way to file a complaint with us. So that tells me for the most part, you guys are doing things right. Um, most of you um, have some pretty good instincts, trust them, ask for advice if you if you need it. Um, and I certainly um, recognize, I, I've been off the bench now for a little over 15 years. Society has definitely changed. People are crazier, they just are. Um, and we recognize that you guys put up with a lot. Um, and appreciate the work that you do do. So I'll just leave my parting comments with that. Uh, those were terrific um, party com uh, parting comments. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for this presentation. This, this again should be available on YouTube and as an audio only podcast. Uh, I'll tell everyone to uh, uh, return safely to, to your homes. Have a wonderful weekend. Oh wait, there are a few chats. All right, just thanks. All right, have a good day. Everybody.